Indeed, that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Jesus has paid it all. There's not a sin left for us to atone for. There's not one lick of the fires of hell that can touch us because Jesus paid it all. As we uh, come to the Word of God this morning, let's ask for the Lord's help as we bow together in prayer. Our Father, we come before Your holy, inspired, and authoritative Word, and we recognize that we are finite, You are infinite. That we, of our own power and strength, cannot discern the truths found within. We need Your Spirit to illumine them before us. So I ask, Lord, that You would please do that work in our hearts here and now. That You would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see all that you have for us in your word. And Father, may you instruct us how we might live according to it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to please turn in your personal copy of God's word to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Last week, we studied the parable of the Good Samaritan at length. And I want us to return to that parable again this morning as we think through the implications of this parable for our lives. We really just had time last week to kind of look at the exposition. What, what is Jesus actually saying here? and What's going on in this passage? And I refer you to last week's sermon for that in-depth explanation. And so this week, though, we're looking more in depth at what does this mean then for our lives? How should we live differently based upon what Jesus says in this parable? And so I'd like us to begin by reading the text again for us, and then we'll go from there. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Taking care, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. In this text, Jesus poignantly teaches this so-called lawyer or expert in the law a valuable lesson about love. As we saw last week, this man was seeking to justify himself, seeking to prove to himself and to others that he was indeed a righteous man, that he knew the law, that he obeyed the law to a T, as he defined it. Jesus, knowing this man's heart, continued to press in and to lead him to a point to where he could not get out from under the demands of God's law. Jesus taught him that you cannot define God's commandments, narrow them in so that it fits your life, so that you can suddenly seem righteous. God wanted His people to have compassion 
on whomever they came across. Whoever was in need, whether they were a part of Israel or whether they weren't. Whether they were a part of the brothers, those who were part of their own kin, or whether they were outside the fold. And so the principle is clear, as we talked about last week. We are to love all those in need that God places in our path. We cannot allow excuses, religious or otherwise, to cause us to evade this responsibility. We can't allow our hearts to become hard to the poor, the destitute, and the suffering. But while this interpretation is fairly easy to discern, we understand the point that Jesus is making. The application is not so easy. We go, when we go to, in, to implement this principle, okay, I'm going to love people, I'm going to love those in need, we're faced with an avalanche of needs all around us. And that's the case both for us as individuals and for us collectively as a church. I mean, just think of all the causes, the good causes that are brought up when we talk about the needs of the world. There's stopping human trafficking. There's saving babies from abortion. There's helping to provide clean water to those in third world countries. There's helping to get the homeless back on their feet and into society. There's operating safe houses for abused women and children. And the list can go on. And all these uh, are and can be done by many in the name of Christ. But the question is, are we obligated to be involved in all these causes? Here's our dilemma put another way. If Jesus wants us to show mercy to those who are hurting around us, does this mean that every opportunity is an ought? Does this mean that every opportunity is an ought? How do we discern between what we should do and what we could do? I was faced with this challenge in college as being at a Christian college, I heard chapel speakers and they brought in people of different Christian organizations and pastors and many brought with them a message about the cause that they were championing. And so they would get up there and try to inspire a room full of college students to give their lives towards a certain cause. In one particular case, it was highlighting the needs of, of children in, in inner city L.A. I was burdened. And I was wondering about a career change. Should I be looking to be a teacher to these children in the inner city? But my parents, who are, were wise, and they heard as I was suddenly struck with this sudden need that was placed before me, a need I didn't really know the extent of before this man expounded it for me, they gave me an important principle. They said a need doesn't constitute a call. Just because there are needs out there doesn't necessarily mean we are called to meet those needs. We may be called to meet those needs, but we need to discern God's will in the matter before we label it a calling. And this principle is important for us to remember because we are all surrounded by a sea of needs. In the age of the internet, we have instant access to news about people all over the nation and all over the globe. As soon as a tragedy hits somewhere, someplace, we hear about it. Many of us get the notifications on our phones here in instant time. We turn on our news app, turn on the news station on TV, and we hear about the suffering around the world. We open our social media and we find a whole other list of needs. Families, acquaintances, friends. We open our emails. And we get all of the pressing emails from all the great Christian organizations that we support. And they're asking for our time and money to support their causes. And then even within our own fellowship, our own church body, there's many needs that we have. And we are looking to support one another in those things. You throw in your workplace and the people you work around. You throw in your neighborhood. We are surrounded by a sea of needs. And so in the midst of all these needs, one of two things can happen. We either get overwhelmed and we despair, or we grow indifferent. And neither one is where Jesus wants us to be. We indeed want to obey Christ, right? 
We want to hear on that day when we finish our course, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to know that we obeyed what he said and we took advantage of the opportunities that he wanted us to. And so we need this message of this text to press into us that we would love sacrificially. That we would not be content in a certain self-righteous smugness that doesn't give itself to the needs of others. We need to be challenged by this text. And yet, we can't allow that challenge to press us into guilt or despair or indifference for meeting needs that we were never intended to meet. So this morning, I want to help us to navigate the sea of needs by offering eight principles for directing our compassion. Eight principles for directing our compassion. We need to know how to navigate through all of this. Otherwise, it just becomes overwhelming and we might just turn away altogether. So eight principles. The first principle for us this morning is number one, consider others' poverty. Consider other people's poverty. Now I use poverty here to not simply designate financial poverty, but really as a catch-all term for neediness. There's, there can be all different kinds of poverty, relational poverty, and physical poverty, and spiritual poverty. And so there's, in, in these categories, these are the, the main things that we think about. Obviously this, this parable that we have before us has us think about the physical needs that people may have. And rightly so. But physical needs are not the only needs that people have. Physical poverty is not the only thing that, that people are faced with. They're also faced with, as we know, spiritual poverty. And so as Christians, our concern cannot simply stop at meeting physical needs. We're not only concerned for people's bodies, but also for their souls. And too often... Believers donate time and money to meet physical needs such as clean water, housing, financial assistance, famine relief, and etc. without seeking to also address spiritual needs. And so as we seek to relieve people's suffering, we must remember, as Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert say in their book, What is the Mission of the Church?, that there is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. There's something worse than death as something better than human flourishing. What's worse than death? Well, it's eternal torment in hell, as the Bible says, what is waiting all those who do not trust in Jesus. And what is better than human flourishing? What is better than a utopia here on earth? It's eternal fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit in the new heavens and new earth. And so we must keep eternity in view as believers who are seeking to help people in need. Now, this doesn't mean that if we give a meal to our neighbor, that if we don't share the gospel, it's worthless. It's just to say that we must keep in mind that people are spiritual beings and they're going to spend eternity somewhere. As soon as a, a baby is conceived, an eternal soul is brought into an existence. These people are eternal beings. And so from a Christian perspective, we want people in the developing world to have clean water. We want diseases to go away with, with filtered water. But if we devote years of our lives and millions of dollars toward that end without also seeking to promulgate the gospel in those areas, we have, have we done as much good as we could? Have we done the right good that God would have us do? So the first thing we must keep in mind is both people's physical poverty and spiritual poverty. And our heart should break over both, friends. Again, our hearts cannot become indifferent to these needs. As we see people hurting physically and spiritually all around us, we can't allow our hearts to grow cold over such needs. We can't allow our affluence, whether spiritual affluence or physical financial affluence, to numb us to the pain that people feel every day. And so we must consider other people's poverty. The second principle for us to consider is consider your moral proximity. Consider, consider your moral proximity. A term you may not have heard before. It's, it's a helpful principle, principle for determining what it is that we should be, what it is that we are obligated towards. We have a moral obligation to do. 
Again, the authors De Young and Gilbert describe moral proximity this way. They say, the closer the need, the greater the moral obligation to help. Moral proximity refers to how connected we are to someone by virtue of familiarity, kinship, space, or time. The nearness that we have to them. Nearness can be determined in different ways. Nearness could be determined by relationship. For example, if my brother, a thousand miles away, has a financial need, I'm more obligated to help him than someone I don't know with the same problem who might live only five miles away from me. Because I'm morally closer to him. Likewise, we have a greater obligation to meet the needs of someone in our own congregation and less of an obligation to meet the needs of a Christian who happens to live in Denver or pick anywhere else in the world. That's not to say there's no obligation or there's no responsibility or we don't do anything for people who are farther distant from us. But again, we're trying to understand levels of priority and how do we devote our time, energy, and resources. Nearness can also be determined by geography, though. And this was the case of the Good Samaritan, right? This Samaritan knew nothing about this man along the side of the road, but as he came close to them, he was suddenly face-to-face with a need. Suddenly face-to-face with a person who desperately needed his help, and therefore he was morally obligated in that situation to meet that need. And so those who live right around us, our neighbors that live next door, across the street, those who are in our own town compared to those who are across the country, And so as we think about this, these different levels of moral proximity, we need to think about the circles that God has in our lives. Okay? And so the first place we look naturally is family. Family. We have a moral obligation to meet the needs of those in our own family. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Friends, we have an obligation to take care of our own families. This is where moral obligation begins. This applies first with our nuclear family, but then it extends out to our relatives. And of course, the further out that we go, the less responsibility that we have. You have more of a responsibility to take care of your parents than you do for your second cousin twice removed. And you have more of an obligation to your second cousin twice removed than you do the stranger on the street. Now, we live in an individualistic society in which we are supposedly all individual units and we all only care for ourselves and we can choose who we care for. In fact, this new term, chosen families, identifies people that are essentially rejecting their blood family and simply want to create families based upon what they want. And listen, to be with friends and whatnot is not a problem, but we need to recognize that the blood families God has given us is part of the responsibility that we have. We have a responsibility to care for the family members that we know that are in need. The second circle of moral proximity to consider is our church, church family. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul here gives us a levels of priority. Yes, do good to everyone as you have opportunity, but there is a priority. And that priority first comes to those who are among the household of faith, those who are among our local church. Being covenanted members of this church means that we are family. Each of us has a responsibility to each other. And I know you know this. As needs arise, you seek to meet those needs within our church family. And it's beautiful to see. And beautiful to receive. Our family received so much of that help in our hour of need in these last few months. And of course we look to the book of Acts. We look through church history and we see that the church met the needs of each other. And that was a high priority for every Christian. Next area of moral proximity is neighbors. We have have an obligation to those we live next to. If the family next door has fallen in hard times, 
is having an emergency, then we should be ready to open our homes and our wallets to help in all the ways that we can. We have more of an obligation towards those who live next to us and across the street than we do those who live across town. Because we know them. We know their needs. I mean, unbelievers know this. They're, unbelievers are taking care of each other, meet each other's needs. We should know this as well. And so we should be looking for needs in our neighborhoods, in our apartment complexes, and the like. Next is co-workers. Co-workers, the people we work next to. We have a responsibility to meet their physical and spiritual needs, those that we see on a daily, weekly basis. And we have a more of an obligation towards those that are in our own workplace than those that are in another company or another industry, or even in the same company at a different location. Again, it's moral proximity. We know these people. We work alongside them. We hear of the things going on in their lives and their families, and we can better step in and meet those needs and pray for them and seek to bring them to Christ if possible. Next is communities. Say our city goes through a natural disaster together. We have a certain obligation to help meet the needs of the people here in our own communities. But we don't have the same obligation to help a community that's been flooded on the East Coast. Again, there's things we can do, but the obligation is not as great. And finally, I just list other connections. I mean, we are social Beans. We, humanity is connected through all sorts of relationships. Even outside the ones that I've mentioned. Right? Friends from college. People we meet. Acquaintances. Missionaries. Friends of family. Friends of friends. And so we can be morally close to a need based upon those relationships. But of course it could also be the stranger that we meet along the side of the road. As Jesus' parable teaches us. Those things that we run into... Say you're on the road and you witness a car accident. Doing all that you can to step out and see if they're okay and to call 911 and to be able to meet those needs in that moment because you're there. So the question before us is, who has God placed in your life? Who's in these circles of connections? Who are you morally close to and where's the pain and suffering and need in these areas? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about if there's any neighbors who might be suffering that, could, that you could even pray for, much less serve in some other way? Are there, have you thought about your co-workers? Or maybe that family member that drives you nuts but you haven't really thought of ways to help meet needs. We need to be open to people whether we like them or not and seek to love as Jesus calls us to. So as we seek to navigate the sea of needs all around us, we need to Adopt the principle, I believe, of moral proximity and recognize that we don't have the same levels of obligations to the seven plus billion people in the world. God has placed us in specific places and specific relationships. We need to recognize those. The third principle to consider is your passions. Your passions. God has equipped the body of Christ with lots of different people. We're not monolithic. We don't all look the same, do the same, have the same strengths and weaknesses. There's great diversity within the body of Christ. And we all bring something unique to the table. And so we all want to do good, but we sometimes get excited about different things. And we can do, offer different good that we, that we can do. And of course, while we all should hate evil, some of us get riled up about different evils in the world. Some of us feel more passionately, more burdened for certain evils than others. Some people are burdened to fight for the unborn. Others, their hearts break for those trapped in sex and human trafficking. Some have a heart for families who have special needs children and want to serve and love on them. Others are burdened to help get children off the streets. There's a diversity of interests and passions within the body of Christ and even within the universal church. And so we collectively are looking to meet all sorts of needs together. We can't all do everything, so we have to work together. And of course, we're gifted in different ways. If you need help with your car, you're not going to call me. I'm going to maybe pull up a YouTube video. That's about all I can do to help you. We've all got strengths and weaknesses to meet different needs, and that's 
what the church, working together as the church, is able to meet those and, and meet far more needs than all of us could meet individually. And so we need to discern what it is our passions are. Where do our strengths lie? Where can we truly meet needs? Author Amy Joseph writes this. She says, There are plenty of good works to be done within the lanes of our spiritual and physical gifts. We need not try to operate in every possible lane. While there will be times when God calls us to stretch out of our comfort zones, we can also be assured that God has wired us for the good works He's prepared for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says that we're the workmanship in Christ, that we, He's prepared good works for us. Those good works He has prepared for you, God has equipped you to be able to do. And those are going to be different than others. So we need to ask ourselves questions like, what gifts and passions have others in the body consistently affirmed in me? What areas of need particularly grieve my heart? When do I most feel the pleasure of God as I work? To help you to discern where is it that you should devote time and energy and effort. The fourth guiding principle for us is consider your capacity. Consider your capacity. Our seasons of life change and thus our capacity to help in different circumstances changes as well. Parents in my stage of life, we have our hands full with a lot of littles. And so that alters our capacity. It doesn't rule us out, but it causes us to think through what it is that we're able to do and we have to factor in our season of life. People with alien spouses have to devote much time to that. And therefore, they, their capacity is limited. We all have our capacity limited in different ways. Others of you may be in a stage of life in which your capacity, your time has been opened up. Maybe you're an empty nester now. And so you've just sent your kids off and you've got more capacity to meet more needs. In addition to time capacity and energy capacity, there's also financial capacity. God has blessed us all differently and financially. And therefore, some of us might be more open, have more financial capacity to help in different ways than others. God's sovereign over all these things. And this isn't to say that if there's someone that has more money than us, that we sit back and let them handle all the financial needs. No, we all need to determine what is my capacity? What is my financial capacity? How can I bless with the resources God has given me? We all are looking to be accountable to the Lord. And so as we evaluate capacity, we need to ask questions like, what are my priorities in this season of life? What has God called me to right now that I need to make sure that I am taking care of? And are the needs before me going to pull me away from those priorities? Or can they come alongside my priorities in a meaningful way? For me to up and uh, go to Africa to help with some need over there doesn't allow me to take care of the priorities that God has placed within my family and everything else. I can't just go... And fly off and meet every need. i got to consider what it is that God has placed me in. And be able to determine my capacity to meet needs. Number five. Consider your providential opportunities. Consider your providential opportunities. As I read earlier. Paul exhorts us to do good to everyone as we have opportunity. We need to discern what those opportunities are, though, and take advantage of them. God is sovereign over our lives. Amen? He determines all things by His providence. And so even those interruptions, those inconvenient requests, those things that keep you from getting to where you're trying to go, God is at work in those. And so we need to try to discern these opportunities. Again, this ties into our moral proximity that we talked about earlier. Who it is that God's placed in our lives. And how can we meet these needs? We need to keep our eyes open. But it's naturally, friends, we, we think about ourselves. Right? That's why the command is love your neighbor as yourself. Because the assumption is you already love yourself. <laughs> we don't need to work at loving ourselves. By nature, we are turned inward on ourselves. We love no one better than ourselves. And that's what the gospel frees us from is love to self and enables us to love God. And 
So, but we can easily slip into that and continue to, to, to just care for our own needs. We think about where we're going, our schedule, our things that we want to purchase, the things that we want to do in life. And we need to, we need to think about our lives and do those for the glory of God. So it's not wrong to think and plan and all that for ourselves, but we need to make sure that we're not so preoccupied with ourselves. Again, that was the problem of this lawyer, this expert in the law and Jesus, in this account with Jesus. He wasn't really concerned about the needs of others at all. He was only concerned about himself and his own righteousness and how he looked and how he felt about doing good. He wanted to go home in a smug sort of self-contentedness. Friends, when needs come across our path, they're more often than not going to be inconvenient to meet. They're going to be inconvenient. They're going to be costly. They might be painful. That pain, that inconvenience, might cause us to factor in to not do it. And again, we've got to discern all these things before the Lord. I'm not dictating something for you in every circumstance. But we need to recognize, am I just don't like being inconvenienced here? Can I really go out of my way and put that appointment on hold or maybe not get this so I can give to this cause, this person? And so we can often not be looking for, our, for others' needs and we can often find excuses for not, for not meeting them when we do. And so some questions we need to ask are, what needs has God placed right before you right now? Is there someone in your small group that is going, struggling, having a hard time that you've heard about? Is there a neighbor in a needy time of life? Or maybe you've noticed some things from across the street and you're wondering if there's a way that you can come alongside them. Maybe your friend is starting a nonprofit and they're asking you to join in to be a part of what they're seeking to do. Or maybe there's a few of you in your small group and as you've talked, you've really become passionate about something, meeting some need, about combating some evil that you see. Maybe this is God's providence in bringing you together to help meet that meet those needs but whatever we see before us we need to spend time praying asking god help to discern whether this is his will that we would pursue this that we would give time to it that we would give money towards it so we need to consider our providential opportunities number 6 consider your prudential options yes i found another p word to fit here Prudential, simply being prudent, wise. We need to, as we think about now, say we have an, an option that we, a need before us, and we go, yes, Lord, I want to meet this need. As we move forward to meet it, we need to do it wisely. We cannot simply head off and throw money at something, throw time at something, and just think that if our intentions are good, then it's all right. Because, you see, one of the problems with charity in America is that we've assumed that more money will fix the problem. And we often equate charity with free handouts. I'll just give this, and then I'll walk on and go, and you take care of it. I hope that helps. Several books have been written in recent years showing this to be a failed approach, and maybe some of you have read those. Their titles alone tell their message. Titles such as, the Tragedy of American Compassion, or Toxic Charity, or When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. These books highlight the fact that giving, the giving of money often makes people's problems worse if, they're, if we don't take into account several economic factors. These people may seem better off in the short term. They've got a flush of cash or whatever the case might be, but we can end up hurting them in the long run. And yet, in our charity, we give the money, their eyes light up, they're thankful, they move on, we feel good because we've given, and so we think everything's hunky-dory. But we can often fail to think about the long-term consequences of, what, of the very good that we're trying to do. And I am not an economist, and I direct you to those books I mentioned to uh, be able to uh, be able to think through more of these 
economic realities, but just some things for us to think about from a biblical standpoint. We need to remember that there is dignity in work. God created us to work. And because we're made in God's image and God is a working God, we were also made to work. And Paul is clear in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 that if someone's not willing to work, then they shouldn't eat. We gain the reward of our food from our labor. In addition to this, wealth is created through work. There is not just a fixed amount of wealth in this world that is like a thing of ocean, of water that's just flowing from some people to other people and back and forth again. And so if it's flowed away from you, then it's gone to somebody else. Wealth is created through work. And so wise strategies for helping people will include these sorts of principles. For example... When the homeless are simply given handouts, they are not taught how to get, a, get and keep a job, and therefore they can be kept in poverty longer. Like the modern proverb says, right? Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. We want to do long-term good, not just a flash in the pan. DeYoung and Gilbert, again in their book, What is the Mission of the Church, write about how good intentions are not enough in our charity. They say, it may seem like a good idea to give away mosquito nets for free in Africa, but experience with this approach has shown that when something is free, people don't value it and won't use it. Better to charge a nominal fee. Likewise, it may seem like a good idea to build buildings for the poor in other nations or to buy their medicines for them, but this can create patterns of codependency and rob them of the dignity that comes from taking care of their own problems. Corbett and Fickert in their book, When Helping Hurts, and I'd recommend that to you, When Helping Hurts, describe a scenario where a church desired to do some, something for low-income families in their city. And so at Christmas time, they took gifts to a low-income apartment building, and they, they were going door-to-door knocking and giving gifts to children. And after a couple of years, they noticed that each apartment they went to, that there, uh, was, there were no father's present. And so they concluded that this fatherlessness was contributing to their poverty and part of the issues that were going on. But what they found out later was that because they were showing up and giving these nice shiny gifts to the children, these fathers were ashamed they couldn't provide for the same, the same level of gift for their children. And so they were hiding or going out the back. And so this church, recognizing what was causing what would actually bring about the most long-term good, they began to empower these parents to be able to provide gifts for their children, therefore strengthening their family bond and giving the parents the pride of being able to give to their children. However we seek to help people, we need to keep basic economic principles in view, remember the dignity of work, and think about the long-term consequences that would bring about the most good in these people's lives. Seven, seventh principle for us to consider is consider the church's priorities. Consider the church's priorities. Just as we individually live in a sea of needs all around us, so the church corporate as an institution lives in a sea of needs. There are many things that we as a church could be engaged in. The question we need to ask is what should we be engaged in? What should we do? And we need wisdom to discern those things. The church is a gathering of believers. And you might think that, well, if you're gathering of believers, then every command given to a believer is also then the command for the church corporate. That if an individual receives this command, then that means all of us together are to obey that command. And in some senses, in some ways, that's true. But it's not always true. And particularly as it relates to the mission of the church, what we as a church, as an institution, is to be devoted towards doing, Jesus has given us our marching orders in the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples is the primary verb in that passage. We're to make disciples, and then he gives two 
primary activities that are to be included in this making of disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So it's from this text and others that we discern the church's mission is composed of three essential activities. Proclaiming the gospel, baptizing into the church, and teaching obedience to Christ. Proclaiming the gospel, baptizing into the church, and teaching obedience to Christ. And if you turn the page of the Gospels into the book of Acts and begin to see, well, did the early church do this? You're going to find that, yes, they did. This is exactly what you see all throughout the book of Acts. They preached, they baptized, they taught. They preached, they baptized, they taught. But in addition to looking at what they did do, it's also important to consider what they did not do. They were not on a mission to eradicate poverty in their city or in the Roman Empire. Paul did not instruct the church in Corinth to set up homeless shelters or to feed all the poor in their city, or any other church for that matter. Their immediate goal was not to set out and transform the empire per se. Transforming the structures and... and the ways that the empire is run. Paul did not travel city to city trying to stop human trafficking or slavery or infanticide. He's traveled city to city preaching the gospel. And as people believed the gospel, their lives were changed and these activities in their lives began to cease. As Paul teaches the churches to observe all that Christ had commanded, he does not teach that the church has a responsibility to relieve the suffering of the entire world. Again, the, parable, the, the passage before us, the Good Samaritan means our hearts seem to be open to the needs of the world. We can't grow cold and callous. But at the same time, our mission and our calling from God is not to try to eliminate poverty in our day. So the church had a clear calling to go into all the world and tell the lost sinners how they might be reconciled to God. They were to give witness to who Jesus is and how through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, someone could be saved. But this did not mean that they were then to just go out and only do evangelism and close their hearts to all the needs of the people that they came in contact with. No, Jesus and Paul taught that the church was to do good to all the people as they had opportunity. And the book of Acts and church history record how Christians were so generous in their love to the needy of the world. But in addition to this, the church is a community that's to care for itself. It's to care for its own. And we see this in Acts and in, in the epistles. The commands to care for the poor, for the downtrodden, are particularly commands for the church to look at those who are needy within their own midst. Acts chapter 2 and Acts... Chapter 4, right? You hear about them selling their the church, sold their possessions, and they laid them at the feet of the apostles so that no one had any need. This wasn't eradicating need in Jerusalem. This is eradicating need in the church. They took care of each other's needs. Acts chapter 6, we see the church caring for widows in their midst through a ministry of faithful men. Galatians 2 verse 10, Paul is eager to help take care of the poor in the church, probably especially the Jewish poor in Jerusalem. James 1, believers are exhorted to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And then we come to some passages that particularly press us to not neglect physical needs. And I want us to see these. Turn, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. This is in the section about how faith that is alive also is going to have works accompanying it. Look at James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now these verses have been used to 
say that Christians are even involved in every sort of humanitarian uh, cause. But we need to notice the language here. This is the James speaking to the church, and he says that if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in food, in other words, he's saying, listen, if there's someone who is bought by the blood of Christ and is there in your midst, and, and yet is, is poor and is showing, doesn't even have basic necessities, and if you are closing your heart to a brother and sister in Christ, do you really have faith? Do you really believe in Christ at all? His example here refers to relationships within the church specifically. Now turn to the right a couple books to 1 John chapter 3. Again, by emphasizing these and looking at these passages, it's not to say that we close our hearts to those who are outside the church. Don't mishear me. Again, the parable of the Good Samaritan presses us to have open hearts to all those God's places on our path. We need to recognize the, where these passages in particular are directing us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he, being Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Again, the same thing applies here. He's talking about brothers, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that if, if Jesus has so laid down his life for us, we've got to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters and give not just in a hearty spiritual encouragement, but also meeting physical needs. We're to love sacrificially in word and in deed because we're the church of Jesus Christ. We're to put on display before a watching world what it means to live under the Lordship of Jesus. We are to model the love of Christ that Christ has for us as we love one another. Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. But you say, what about the least of these? Matthew 25, doesn't it say that whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for Christ? We don't have time to look at it this morning, but that passage is not telling the church to meet all the physical needs in the world. Again, Jesus says, as he's in the midst of the judgment between the sheep and the goats, he says, whatever these believers have done to the least of these, my brothers, he defines them further as my brothers. And there's some debate about what my brothers means, but I don't believe in any sort of contextual way it can, under, it can mean all of the poor of all the world. I think it means particularly those who are following Christ. The church. How you treat the church. How you treat Christ's people will receive commendation or judgment from the Lord. So what do we make from all of this? The mission of the church is to make disciples through the proclamation of the word. Therefore, whatever the church does should always be advancing this cause above all others. Secondly, as we have opportunity, we should seek to meet the needs of those around us. But we are not called to end human suffering in our city or the world. In other words, there's many things a church can do, but there's only certain things that a church must do. And as you look across of all the things that churches do, different churches can get involved in different things, and that's great. God can equip them in different ways. They have different passions and different strengths and different opportunities. But there's certain things that churches must do, and then there's a whole swath of things that churches can do. We must be clear on the opportunities and the odds. And thirdly, our love for one another in this local body of believers must be radical. Our needs are met by one another, and the deacons help administer that need as we seek to take care of each other. This is what Christ intends for us, that we love not in word only, but in word and in deed. And so as we close this morning, I want to lead you to the eighth and final Guideline, and that is consider your possibilities. Consider your possibilities. And so I want you to consider, to do two things. First is to pray for a heart of compassion, like the Samaritan in Jesus' parable. Friends, we all need to grow in our love for the, the lost, grow in our love for the broken, grow in our love for the hurting. May we have hearts that break for those who are suffering May we not be cold-hearted like the religious leaders that are indicted here in Jesus' parable that walk by on the other side. May we seek and be driven to relieve 
the suffering that we see around us. So we pray for a heart of compassion. And secondly, consider the possibilities before you. You have unique ways to be a neighbor that no one else has. Unique combination of gifts and opportunities to show compassion. What has God placed before you? I don't know what God may do with this, how He may prompt you to meet needs, maybe to organize with other believers to creatively meet some needs. Someone may want to start a ministry. Someone may want to involve their family more in, in meeting the needs of the poor of our communities. Someone might be, want to be more aware of meeting needs within the church body. What are the needs here that we can, we can help meet? We can increase our hospitality to our neighbors. We can open our hearts and our homes to those who are lost and who live next door. That they might be made spiritually rich because of our abundance in Christ. Friends, the point of the text in Luke chapter 10 is that we would be pressed into loving in radical ways. And so for this, in the midst of the sea of needs... I give you these principles not to so define our obedience to this law that we sit back and go, well, I don't really have one directly in front of me, and so I just kind of keep carrying on my merry way. We need to ask that God impress us, Lord, what are the needs before us? It's most likely that we're not seeing them. It's something that our friends, our family are saying things that if we could only pick up on it, we recognize there's a bunch of hurt that's underneath that. That we might be able to offer counsel from the Word of God. Or maybe provide a meal. I pray that God would help us to be have open hearts and helping hands to all those that God places in our path. That we would be known for our love because Christ has purchased us. That we might live for His glory and spread His love to those abroad. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh God, we ask that You would please work in our midst Cause us to be lovers of people, not lovers of self. Oh God, please convict us of our selfishness. Convict us of our sin. Cause us to see the ways that we've closed our hearts to those we pass by, to the family members that we, that we hear from all the time and have no compassion for. Father, you know each one of our circumstances. You know each one of our lives. You know each one of our capacities. And I ask that you might cause us to be a community of people that love in significant and tremendous ways. Not so that we can receive any glory for what we do, for the help that we provide, but so that we can simply point to Jesus and say, we have been transformed, that we are able to love, we're able to give in tremendous ways. All praise to the Lord. And we do give you praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.